This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to On the Bench. We have the beginning of a special series uh, that we're going to bring out in the next, I guess, couple days. Part one. Guys, you ready for this? It's what went wrong with Willie Taggart. What went wrong with Willie? <laughs> the, the, the behind the scenes of how Josh Newberg, uh, Christopher Nee, and myself kind of viewed and covered the, the very short and uh, unsuccessful Willie Taggart era of Florida State. Gentlemen, welcome to On the Bench. Thanks for joining me today. How are we feeling about this podcast coming up? Can't wait. <laughs> uh, no, this was something that we were going to do over the summer, um, but we we sped it up now because we got time. And to be fair, we did one with Jimbo. What was the one you and Chris really we, did? It, but we'll... we, were, we were much harsher with Jimbo than I think we're going to be for this one, and it was what the hell, and it was a series that, yeah, uh, Chris and I did one full episode, and I had Wayne on to do an episode, then... Josh, you and I kind of did like a like a sub episode of it as well, yeah. and uh, it's something people were very interested in. We've had people on the message board. I had someone right before actually we started recording slide in my DMs and and say I think it'd be great to do a Willie Taggart episode uh, mm. now when things are slow and and things are slow for us. Uh, I, I want this to be a transparent podcast. I want it to be informative. I don't want this to be something that's taking shots at Willie. Uh, Josh recommended that I apologize. Just do it now. Generally, I feel like this is a now. this is a perfect show for you just to go through and apologize and hedge every bit of the way, and people just get annoyed by it. They understand that you want to apologize, but just just get it out of the way now. I apologize, and I'm also going to apologize for the production plan too, because right now I think we're planning on two episodes, a part one and part two. It may turn into something that's three parts, which I know Chris is on a scale of one to ten. How excited are you, Chris, with the possibility? seven. All right, let's get going. Uh, we want to talk about what was a again a very brief, uh, a dysfunctional tenure for Willie Taggart, one that let's wasn't successful. Let's start at the top, and and that's with optimism. All three of us, to be transparent, were extremely optimistic about Willie Taggart. We all thought it was a good hire, even before the hire was made. Uh, we're covering the the coaching search and hearing that Jimbo Fisher's leaving, and and that was surreal to me that Jimbo was leaving for Texas A and I didn't think it was going to happen. Josh was the only one who really thought it was going to happen. It happens. Uh, Josh, let's start off with once Jimbo leaves and we know Florida State is looking for options. Uh, well, I'm told that Jimbo, well, as soon as he left, that, that Jimbo's agent, Jimmy Sexton, also Willie Taggart's agent, he's in Tallahassee. Chris and I saw Jimmy Sexton uh, <laughs> at, talking to Jimbo as he's turning in what turns out to be his resignation letter. Chris, can we talk about what you did that day with the resignation letter? You mean when I followed Jimbo from the Moore Athletic Center to Westcott to watch him walk in and officially resign? Sure. I was I was I was camping out, w- waiting to see what happens, and Chris was showing up uh, a little bit after I got in there really early. Chris was driving in, 
uh, and he pulls up and we're talking and Chris goes, that's, that's Jimmy Sexton. That's talking to Jimbo. And, and then Jimbo goes to his car. And then, then what ensues is, is a, is you just telling him, right? Like an old fashioned detective. Yeah. I mean, I, I was looking for Park and I was in the wife's car. I'd been at millionaire, the small airport near Epis, or Tallahassee's airport. Wait your to favorite, see who was coming and going. Your favorite, favorite place, place to hang out. Yes. Yes. Um, and when I came in, I'm, I'm banging in a circle over by where the entrance way for the players and practice fields and all that is where Jimbo parks his truck, where coaches always park their cars. And Jimmy Sexton's illegally parked on the other side of the sidewalk with Jimbo leaning in the window, talking to him and Jimmy sitting, sitting in the driver's seat. Well, I'm banging that circle and Jimbo is turning around from the SUV, talking to uh, his agent to get into his truck and he starts pulling out. I have to wait for him to pull out. And then I'm like, yeah, I'll see where he's going. So, I mean, if he went somewhere off campus or something, I probably wouldn't have stayed with him. But the fact that we went straight through campus to Westcott kind of knew what was going down. And so you follow him. Yeah, we didn't exactly know. Like, it wasn't enough to report on it, but we knew something was like there were literally pieces moving at that moment. And not long after, I think the Democrat broke that Jimbo Fisher put in his resignation letter. Uh, within an hour or so of that, guys, I got from a really good source confirmation that Jimmy Sexton was still on campus and had gone up to, uh, I don't know if it was the Westcott building, was on campus negotiating for, for Willie Taggart's contract. Uh, so so that, was, that was kind of the beginning stages of us knowing that that was FSU's target. Now, Josh, you were covering the entirety of the Willie Taggart hiring. Mm. Uh, our editor at the time was talking almost immediately after Jimbo leaves saying, Hey, you guys got to have a hot board ready. Uh, what was your response to, to our, to our boss at that time? There was no hot board. Uh, we had pretty much decided me, you, Chris, Brendan, everybody on the site decided that it's going to be Willie Taggart. And, um, from the get go, we were really preparing for the hire. So we, I don't think we ever put out a, a hot board for, for that, for that coaching search. Did we? You Willie told him. Taggart. Willie Taggart is a hot board. That that was it. Thank you, Chris. That was that was it. Josh can't even remember. It's like his memory is uh, fading away for some reason. God knows why. Organic reasons, I'm sure. Uh, so so that was the response. We were confident that that was happening. I I think in later on we learned that they did talk to some other play uh, other other players or I guess coaches uh, players in the coaching scene as well. Uh, James mm. Franklin among one of them. And James Franklin's name obviously pops up during the uh, the Mike Norvell hiring. But we know that FSU zeroed in on Willie Taggart. Josh, why, why were we optimistic? Uh, both of you guys, why were we optimistic about the Willie Taggart hire? We all liked it. Uh, nationally, most people because liked it as well. We also, why, well, we were, we knew it was kind of going to go down because we all know different sources around Coach Taggart um, that had confirmed with us that if the offer were to come, he was going to take it. So, that's why we followed him so closely as well. We knew the interest was mutual. Um, why were we optimistic? Uh, because of what he did at USF mainly. Um, he, he also was recruiting really well at the time at Oregon. Um, you know, that's why Oregon fans were also bitter that he left. They, it was unfinished business there. He was still building that. And USF to an extent was unfinished business. Although he did build them from taking over as a two or three game winner to building them into a team that ended up winning 11 games that year that he, that he ended up leaving for Oregon. So there was, there was a lot of optimism that he was going to bring in high level recruits 
and keep it very simple, get the ball in the playmakers' hands and let them do their thing on offense. That was what was being was kind of being sold is the the high points of hiring a, a coach like Willie Taggart. Lethal simplicity, badasses and war daddies. Chris, you were there with me covering the initial press conference. Willie crushed it, right? Like that was that was it's hard to not crush those press conferences, but the excitement of the fan base, I I hadn't experienced that covering the team since 2013. Yeah, and it embodied a reason I think there was optimism, or at least people had excitement for the hire, was that it was a departure from what we have known for the last couple of years. You know, the end of Jimbo wasn't enjoyable in any which way for fans, for media, for anybody, hell, for Jimbo. It wasn't fun. And Willie was sort of this injection of excitement and fun, and we're going to do it a different way, but we're going to have results. We're going to return to the days of old when we were great, you know, all those things. And it, it felt that way. You had the press conference. You felt like you walked out, you know, chopping out in the sidewalk area in front with the police escort. It just had that feel of like, man, this is great. This is such a departure. They got this thing done quickly. The ball is rolling. Here we go. It's a weird circumstance with, you know, a sitting head coach walking out on you, but everything's worked out. It's worked out better. Oh, we're going a great direction. That was a feeling. God knows it didn't work out that way, but that was a feeling within the moment. It it did not. It did not. And I want to be transparent for the podcast. I've said that already. This is kind of like me apologizing and hedging. I'll, I'll stop now, Josh. Uh, you had a relationship. You had a relationship <laughs> with Willie Taggart before uh, he came to Florida State. Your coverage of him at USF. I mean, you live in St. Petersburg. You're involved with the Team Tampa Seven on Seven team. So. Obviously, uh, yeah, there was me, a dynamic there. Everybody assumed a relationship meant that I had a good relationship with Willie Taggart. Well, and you did. You did tell people we were hanging out at his living room jokingly when they asked you. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but it. You know, at the time, everything was great with with Coach Taggart and I. But it didn't start that way. I mean, it started. I, I'm not going to get into all the details, but when he first arrived at USF, I mean, he called. He he requested that I come to his office and meet with him, and. I did. He had a kind of an issue over something I wrote. Um, we we hashed it out, and everything was fine since then, and 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 was for a long time. Um, but it was always a working relationship. Like I always knew uh, that Coach Taggart would would tell me things or, or or lead me in the right direction because he he wanted it reported on, or there was there was various reasons, you know, why he was doing it. And I and I assumed it was a business relationship. And it was. And we had a, you know, a good working relationship. So with that in mind, you know, we all have sources and are all contributing to once Willie is hired, what the coaching staff is going to look like. But but Josh has a unique direct line to Willie Taggart. Uh, and and that leads to information uh, to Josh being able to put out stories and and get an idea of his direction, his vision. What did Willie say to you, Josh? It was something amongst the lines of spl- of splash. <laughs> Does it good? It feels it feels kind of weird for me too. Like, I right, feel like so I'm interviewing you. Here, it's not how me, we normally me, do let it. Me, yeah, let me just take it from here. So. I kind of had an idea of the way that the staff was going to be built because it took the same shape that it took at Oregon. Um, he was going to bring his boys in, underpay them, and then overpay some bigger names to kind of fill out the staff. And that's where he brought in Levitt, and that's where he brought in Mario, and that's where he kind of um, balanced the staff out with hires like a Dante Pimpleton and a Raymond Woody um, at FSU, you know, bringing in a Telly Lockett and Alonzo Hampton. The plan was was to balance that out with 
splash hires. The, the word that I was always told was splash or big hires or, you know, make a splash. Um, so originally he thought it was going to be Levitt, maybe Mario. And then quickly, uh, Mike Loxley a- after Mario got the job, cause that happened very fast. Uh, I think he zeroed in on Mike Loxley. And if you remember, there was a two night kind of three day period where, where Mike was in town and he courted him. Um, he was going to be the big hire, you know, he's coming from, and at the time the Levitt thing had kind of dissipated and, and he had known that, that Levitt wasn't going to be the hire. So he had, there was real, a lot of real money. quick, Josh, the, the Levitt yeah. thing, I think we've talked about before on the podcast, the Levitt thing we were told at the time was very much so Oregon giving Willie the middle finger for, for leaving well, the way he did. I mean, I've uh, talked to Levitt since and <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, it was FU money. Definitely. Essentially. It was Phil yeah. Knight money. It was Phil doing it more than yeah. anyone. Yes, exactly. When you have that few money, you can tell people to F like F off. That's that's how that works. Absolutely. So there were some things that that didn't go as I think Willie thought they were going to go, that some of the dominoes that were going to fall afterward didn't really fall the way he thought they were. But at the same time, you know, he, he couldn't worry about the defensive staff. So he locked in on Mike Loxley. And that thing, if you remember, he came in, I think it was a Thursday or Friday night and left like on a Sunday. It's kind of really strange to see a coach come in town for that long and spend that much time doing his interview only to you know get back to Tuscaloosa and take another day to decide. Remember, we were on Mike Loxley watch there for like 72 hours and ultimately turns turns FSU down. Well, um, re- rewind that real quick, Josh. Uh, part of that process of trying to get Loxley in, in a sticking point like Willie Taggart initially did not want to hire a quarterbacks coach correct that's correct so when he first got there the, the plan was to the plan I was told was Willie Taggart was going to coach QBs call the plays and be the head coach he was going to bring in um a a recruiting staff around him and somebody at, at the at the wide receiver, you know, there somebody was going to get the passing game coordinator role. I, I'm not sure, but that was the plan in the beginning. And then um, Mike Loxley was kind of talked to and brought in. And I think Willie Taggart quickly realized that he was going to have to offer him play calling duties. I don't think any coach in America uh, at a high level was going to come in and and not call the plays. I mean, Mike was calling the plays at Alabama. So if you're going to court him, you have to offer that. So um, there was a pivot there where Coach Taggart knew that if he's going to bring in a QB coach, then he's going to also have to bring in a play caller with him. He's not going to hire a high-end QB coach that was a formerly an OC, as maybe he thought he was. So at that point, he kind of gave up that bargaining chip and was open to bringing in an OC in name only, of course, because he was still going to call the plays. Um, and then I don't know, you know, all the all the chips were in one basket, but it quickly went from Walt from Mike Loxley to Walt Bell, real quick. And I don't know if that was due to a lack of names that he had on his card. Uh, I had heard and I had been told that this was kind of it was brought to him to his attention by Jimmy Sexton. This wasn't a name that was tied to Willie Taggart in any way. It was just kind of brought up to him, suggested to him. Well, I think Willie had had some connection to Maryland's head coach at the time when they were at Stanford. If I'm, I recollection could be off on yeah, that. Yeah, and but. they also played a, a Walt Bell team. There's some there's some overlap there, but um, from what I was told, it was it was pretty much just kind of brought up to him, but by an outside voice. Um, real real quick, this is 
to me, the beginning of signs that I know at the time, Chris, I want to get your thoughts on this. Uh, we're seeing guys, Jim Levitt, not work out. Mario Cristobal obviously gets a head coaching job. Uh, Mike Loxley does not work out. And it was taking a long time. It, it, the, it, the thing is, those three names you just mentioned could all be explained away for sensible reasons. Mario got a head coaching job. Levitt got overpaid. Loxley was, you know, hanging out for something better because he knew something better was coming within the organization he was part of with the fact that he had a future of uh, being a head coach again. So like those could be explained away, but clearly there was a jumping off of the cliff point when they went from having names of that quality to where they ended up. And uh, the big leap is where the big issue became known, but we didn't recognize that in real time. It's something that became clearly evident as the months wore on. And well, Josh, do you want to talk about how Harlan Barnett was put on Willie Taggart's radar? Uh, we can skip over that. If you yeah, want. let's skip over that. Okay. All right. But regardless, the staff was not options A or B. Mm-hmm. It seemed like they were very much so C options for Willie Taggart. And that, in hindsight, is something that we should look at as something that was alarming. Like Chris said, some of the main ones could be explained away. And on paper, like you look at what Walt Bell did at Arkansas State and, and Maryland, like there were some impressive things there. You look at what Harlan Barnett did at Michigan State as the co-defensive coordinator – we were told that he was the primary TC at Michigan State. Like, there were impressive things there. The, uh, and, Brendan, the issues ended up being communication. I'm sure we're going to get into this at different points. But yes. the issues ended up being communication. And I got to fault that to the fact that a lot of these coaches had never worked together. Not A lot of these coaches didn't come from the same – even the same coaching tree, you know? Um, Walt well, and, Bell, and, while, and, key, and key coaches too, man. Like, it's not just like you're – assembling like a, a recruiter, like you're pulling in a Tim Brewster be a position coach. You're talking about the guy coordinating your offense day-to-day and the guy coordinating your defense day-to-day and, and it, never worked with that right. coach. And before. if you want a guy to be the OC and name only, it, it has to be like the way that Jimbo had it. He had a James Coley, somebody that worked under him, somebody that knew everything that Jimbo was going to think before he thought it. And that's why it worked because Coley was like an extension of him. In this case, it yeah. didn't work because Walt Bell was so forward. Every, I, you know, hearing behind the scenes, Walt had a different way of using verbiage. It just everything was just different. Not that it was bad or better or worse. It was just different. And then you you throw these two people together, and it was going to take more time than what it took for them to become one and, and work in in unison. Yeah, and when you're hiring people, you need to either hire people that are similar minded. Or you need to be open-minded enough to deal with different opinions. And in this case, that wasn't Correct. the way it worked. They they hired a defensive coordinator who was bred of four three defenses for a team that eventually wanted to become a three four, which I know Chris need foreshadowing jumping ahead. Here I go. Oh, so sweet that you're self-aware though, too. It's okay. There's gonna be a lot of foreshadowing. Hey, there's no need to apologize, guys. We got we got it all out of the way up front. We got it all out of the way up front. Uh we will we will talk more about that awkward transition as well. Uh one more thing as we finish up the coaching staff and again, kind of this, we're talking about the, in hindsight, the negative, but there was a lot of feel good at the time when they're, when they're putting things together initially. Uh, and one of the reasons was because Willie Taggart was really good at, at playing the the public relations game. Deion Sanders, Josh, let's talk about, <laughs> about that. that Cause that was, that was very early on. I think that was around the same time as the bowl game. Yeah. So, so Willie Taggart's was the bowl game? late December, Chris, we, when, when were you in when were you in beautiful Shreveport? What the Florida State Southern Miss game? Yeah, yeah. What was uh, it was right before New Year's. It was December twenty seventh. So 
on December 26th, um, I talked to coach Taggart and he told, and I was, he would kind of confirm things. Like if I would throw out names that I had been here and were involved with jobs, he would at least tell me if they were, if that was true or not. And, um, I was asking him some questions on the DB hire and he brought up the name Deion Sanders. And I was just like, what? Like, what? Because I'm thinking like, how am I going to word this? Like, how am I going to report this? Like, so I wanted to make sure I'm like, are you telling me that you're interested in Dion or Dion reached out to you? Because like Dion reaching out to coach Taggart for, you know, that's, and he was just, and he was just like, he didn't really answer. And he said, he kept, he was kind of telling me that that would be, you know, this would be one of those splash names, wouldn't it? Like this would be, this would be one of those big names. And I'm not sure why he wanted it made public. Um, but he told me that, no, it was serious. The the interest was mutual. And I was like, well, you know, I kind of told him I'm going to report it. And he told me to hold on. He goes, report it. He goes, report it tomorrow when the game starts. And I was like, all right. And then I see that Dion is going to be a sideline reporter at the game. So I didn't know what was really happening. Um, and as soon as the game starts, I put it out, the story drops, ESPN quickly picks up on it and interviews Dion in the first or second quarter about it. And everybody, you know, everybody's crapping on me saying that this is clickbait. This is that, you know, this isn't true as soon as I put it out. And then there you have on the field, Dion Sanders confirms my story, (laughs) says that he's been in contact with Willie Taggart. He's interested in the job. Um, whether or not I believe any of this was real or not, uh, it was happening and my job is to report on this coaching search. And I did, um, again, I'm not sure why he wanted it public because in the end, I don't think he was ever serious about hiring Dion or I really don't. He never told me whether he was or not, but I don't think he was. And it built hype, but it also built expectations. And ultimately those expectations when it came to the coaching search, were never met because you don't hire guys like Alonzo Hampton and Telly Lockett and Dante Pimpleton to bring in Walt Bell and Harlan Barnett as your coordinators. Like just financially, uh, just his vision when he got there, that was never kind of the vision of the staff when he arrived. So all of this raised expectations wildly, I think during the coaching search, right? You guys remember watching, watching all that. Yeah, it was, I mean, the excitement was palpable, and part of that's because of the expectations. Oh, there you go. Oh, damn it. I didn't mean to do it. (laughs) It's like a million-dollar word. You did it. You're Uh, checking all the boxes. I was going to say, wait till someone checks the boxes in a little bit. Uh, Yeah, it it was something that the entire fan base was salivating for information. I had friends texting me, like, daily, like, more. We want more. I'm like, there's nothing to give you right now. But people were just so hungry for information, And, and Willie Taggart, did a phenomenal job at at playing into uh, what was it a, a ravenous fan base that was starving for positive for feel good after the end of the Jimbo Fisher era after things got so stale this was new and fresh and fun uh, and that transitioned us into the spring game I mean the recruiting weekend for the spring game was a big deal the actual spring game itself Chris do you remember how many how many people were in attendance for that. Like that was a surreal event. That was one of the cooler events I've covered at Florida state, just the energy in the, at Doak Campbell stadium that afternoon. 
Yeah, I don't remember what they announced for the actual attendance, but it felt like much more than half the stadium, which was kind of mind-blowing. I remember standing up in the press box and looking down and seeing that the side underneath us was completely filled. The ends were solidly filled, and the other side had a good amount filled, despite being, you know, sun-dressed. So, uh, yeah, I, it was it kind of played to the whole, this is new, this feels great, everything's good. Oh, yeah, the hires took a while, but whatever. We'll see how they are in the fall. I think they'll be better. He's got a lot of talent, war daddies. It, it, it was weird. It was like, I don't, it's easy to look back and say, oh, I should have seen that and that was it. I don't remember the first time thinking before the VTech game of, oh man, like this might not be good. And I wonder if there were signs that in real time I noticed and I just kind of whiffed on or glanced over because I feared everything else would supersede it. I don't know what it was, but the spring game was another instance of an injection of good feelings. I mean, the on-field product itself maybe should have been a warning for us in hindsight, but again, they could all be explained away. Like the offensive line, they didn't have anyone who could snap the ball, like physically snap the football. They had injuries at center. Remember, didn't Brady Scott and Corey Martinez go one-two in the draft when they did the team draft because they didn't have? I know Corey definitely went top. I can't remember who the other ones were, but they were both alignment. But Corey was definitely either the first or the second pick. And so, like the on-field product wasn't great, but it was explained away because. There were injuries at key positions and uh, they're learning how to do tempo. And, and, you know, I mean, like the practice, the practices weren't super buttoned up, but they weren't supposed to be like they were supposed to be energetic. And uh, that was Willie Taggart's whole like mantra was we're just going to be like loose and free and have fun. Uh, And and that works to an extent if you get the athletes to to go ahead and, and do that. And that's, I think, the other part of this that we were optimistic about. Josh was the recruiting Uh, Florida state's coaching staff was brought in to recruit Florida. Uh, They said, if we recruit Florida, we win. Uh, And initially early on, the mantra, no, it's not. Uh, No, I not do it right. The mantra was if we win Florida, we win. Oh, they meant if, if you can win Florida and and I believe in this, I mean, there's nothing wrong with what they were saying. Uh, If they said, if we win Florida, we win. So their point was, if we can out-recruit the other in-state schools and get the best players in the state, we will win. And their focus was on the top 25 players in the state. They felt that out of the top 25, they should be landing 50% of those. Yeah, so so Josh, the recruiting aspect is something that made sense, too. They, they assemble a staff that is meant to recruit the state of Florida. Uh, like everyone had a certain territory in Florida. Uh, there was something that Willie Taggart wanted to emphasize. It's something that he specialized in from his time at USF. Uh, he brought in guys who who had experience recruiting the state of Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we saw early returns on that in the spring game. And then Josh and Chris, if you want to take us into Saturday Night Live, that was another event that showed uh, just how dynamic the staff could be with something to sell uh, when it came to recruiting. Yeah, it felt like an all-star event. You had some of the best players in the country, and I know Josh is going to dive in on some of the names. But you, you look down, and you're like, man, they are assembling talent. They are getting top-tier talent. They're getting the kind of players they need to help improve this football team. I don't think we were quite using the phrase turn things around, but we definitely were using phrases of needing help, needing players at certain spots that were going to light up the scoreboard or prevent the other team from doing so. And you saw some of those types of guys at the event. 
Yeah, a lot. And the funny thing was when Mike Norvell was was hired and <laughs> there was a couple visit weekends that were impressive. And people said, oh, it's great to get recruits back on campus again. And, and they acted like it had been a really long time since they had recruits on campus. And, and I think a lot of people misremember just at the level Willie Taggart was, I don't want to say recruiting at, but the level he was able to get guys on campus, at least early on in, in his tenure, was unbelievable. Here's some names, Chris, that, that, were, that were at Saturday Night Live on the field in Doak. Um, and really interested in Florida State at the time. Kayvon Thibodeau, number one defensive end in the country, number one linebacker in the country, N'Kobe Dean, uh, five-star offensive guard, Cardell Thomas, five-star linebacker, Savelle Smalls, four-star wide receiver, George Pickens, four-star defensive tackle, Tyler Davis, Kyer Elam, Derek Hall, Arian Smith, Demarcus Bowman, Sam Howell, Charles Cross, Lloyd Summerall, Charles Turner, Harrison Bailey, the list goes on, but that was that was a talented event. Dude, you know what hurts about that, hearing those names, is people in hindsight like to crap on the Willie Taggart staff and act like they couldn't do anything right. Not only did they get those guys on campus, but man, that staff could evaluate too. Like they like like they chose Sam Howe as their quarterback, and we'll get into his recruitment later, but like they had options. And Sam Howell was really great this year as a, as a freshman. Not perfect, but great. Tyler Davis, I think, was the ACC Defensive Rookie of the Year. And they were able to identify guys who could Tyler come in and Elam's help them program. Played a lot at Florida. George um, Pickens is going to be a beast. Like they yeah. that that just to me, uh, Kayvon Thibodeau is going to be special. Like, uh, and they left that event, Josh. Remember, there was a conversation with Willie after the event. Uh, he was confident they were number one. They were in the driver's seat for for Thibodeau. Like if he had to commit that day. He's, felt good about it because that was his second trip to Florida State, if I recall. Yeah, there was a lot of confidence around him. There was a lot of confidence that Cardell Thomas was eventually going to come around. Remember, at that point, everybody thought this might be Coach O's last season at LSU and FSU might be turning the corner. Well, it went in opposite directions, obviously, and it didn't work out that way. But George Pickens and his mother came back for another visit. Uh, Tyler Davis, I put in a crystal ball after this. I got a good word from somebody that we all know that's very close to Tyler Davis, and he told me to put that pick in for FSU. Uh, Tyler was going to probably decide sometime in August, and he ended up pushing it back, and the rest is history. Um, but the list goes on. I mean, there's there, almost, you could say with all these guys, they were very, very interested in Florida State at the time of their visit. And I skipped over even just in terms of buzz and excitement. We talked about the spring game, like the spring, like the booster tour, which isn't going to happen this year with, with Mike Norvell because of the coronavirus. That was a huge opportunity for Willie Taggart that he crushed as well. He got people excited. Uh, I remember being at the Jacksonville one. There was it was the biggest event they've ever had. Uh, I was at the Manatee one. They, they had to have that people spilling. They had to have people. I don't know if it was like that because that was a little bit later on in the tour for you, Josh. The Jacksonville one's the first one. They had a spillover room. The room was so full they had a room of other people like just to go to the side and watch it on a TV because they just didn't have room for it. It was crazy. Yeah, it was uh, definitely some rock star vibes to it. Like when he was getting people in line to get their picture taken with Coach Taggart. Right. And see how long it was. And, you know, granted, it, it was his hometown and it was an exciting time. Um, but I just I don't think Mike Norvell is going to have the same pop on these on these visits. Well, that, he, that Coach he, well yeah, yeah. He, he's not going to because yeah, it's not right. possible. But, yeah, I think that's what but you know what I mean. It wouldn't be the same turnouts for Mike Norvell. Well, I, I think the fan base, I know I certainly fall in this 
fool me once, you know, shame on right. me, fool me twice. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That whole thing. Yeah. And I, that's not to say Norvell is going to be Willie by any stretch of the imagination. I just think people are taking a very cautious approach. Yeah. I think yeah. most no people shot. also understand the team's not in a good spot. And part of this too, uh, and that's what hurts about it, is people wanted, like, we all wanted Willie to do well. I think most of the fans really wanted Willie to thrive. All of the fans wanted him to thrive. Like, so when when things started going poorly and we're pointing them out, it's just that's our job is to point to point them out. Uh, and with the spring tour, this is going to get us to now the the preseason and, and the start of the the 2018 campaign. One misstep that Willie Taggart made uh, is crystal clear in hindsight and it came back to bite him pretty quickly on when the season started and the results weren't great he hyped up the team he had chances to kind of say let's hit the brakes he did qualify it sometimes saying oh i know everyone's excited right now we haven't played a game yet but he he said he thought the offensive line was was going to be fine uh he he said this wasn't a team that had locker room cancers they weren't quote-unquote turds i forgot when he said that but he he didn't do a whole lot to temper expectations even back to that opening press conference that chris talked about earlier Willie really hyped things up at Florida State for year one. Uh, then as we get closer to the season starting, I remember I had a conversation with with one coach who asked me, they said, Brendan, like how, how did FSU's offensive line get this bad? <laughs> and I dismissed it at the time. I was like, I, you know, like I took it as like they have issues and they know they have issues and warts up front, but that leads us into the 2018 season. I don't think any of us expected that Virginia Tech game. Let's start off with that as we get into the now the season aspect. Uh, no one, none of us expected, and I think more so Willie Taggart didn't expect it. Chris, can you paint a picture of that day, the the season opener for Florida State? It was Labor Day. It was uh, evening kickoff. What was that five, like? Five hours before kick, parking lots were more filled than they'd been in years. People were drinking. People were enjoying themselves. People were jovial. Stadium was packed. We were riding that wave of excitement. Kickoff happened. They got their ass kicked by halftime. It was like, oh, my God, what the hell is happening here? By the end of the game, people were just hoping it was a one-off. But there was a whole lot of panic button feeling going on of ready to touch it but not going to quite touch it because it's just one game. But, man, it sucked every bit of ear out of the balloon, and they never, ever recovered from that moment. Even before the game, didn't Nick Cross commit right before then? You know, I can't actually remember when he popped. I, um, I think he did, I and I think it was timed on purpose, if I'm not mistaken. And if so, that's another tip of the cap to, like, the PR game that the staff played. They were really yeah, good at it. They had a good amount of recruits there. Sideline was packed. I believe Kayvon was actually back for that game, correct? Um yeah, it, it was an event. It was going to be the beginning of something special. The belief that this program is going to be good this year, the future is brighter. We're going to get the ball rolling downhill. This is where it starts, and boom, cannonball! Everything comes crashing down. They look non-competitive, disorganized, penalty-riddled, pretty crappy in general from a playing standpoint. And it just—it it was like a halt of all momentum, and they never, ever, ever recovered. Even in like the preseason, like remember the IMG Academy trip, Chris? Like how, how like the good vibes and the bouncing around on the field, dapping guys up. Right, that, it, but it, but players players were buying into it. That's my point. Is like people like to crap on the dancing and, and Willie's approach now, uh, but but there were guys like who were legitimately buying in and him and what he was selling at that time, right? 
Yeah, but guys only buy in as long as you're winning. Once well, winning goes away, they look for something to blame and why it didn't work. Yeah. And that happened very quickly around these parts. They That's, bought into the process, Brendan. But then once they saw the results, uh, there's a quick buyout. It, it showed how fragile that really that style was, I think, especially for a, for a group of guys who had been burned by their coach that they committed to leaving them for a program that's not, frankly, as good as Florida State. Uh, it was a vulnerable group. And when they bought into to Willie Taggart, you're right, Josh, they, they bought out quickly. That Virginia Every, Tech, everything, everything Willie did and does is momentum-based. Mm-hmm. When, and so when good things are happening, that's great. Right. But yeah. when, when not like it, it, that's what we start to see here. So that Virginia tech game yeah. happens and then it becomes a snowball where the momentum is going in the wrong direction. Uh, you have the Samford game uh, where FSU is going like literally and in, in, it's in a dog fight with an FCS team. Uh, the yeah, defense. Levante Taylor's pick is what saved their asses. Remember Levante, didn't have a great game either. Like he walked off the field distraught and, and upset. Uh, Willie kind of puts his arm around him and tells him to keep his head up. And then if I'm not mistaken, the next game is Syracuse. And then that's a debacle too. Remember, De- guys remember DeAndre Francois gets sacked. And I mean, he got sacked a bunch of times that game. But the play where Abdul Bello uh, let a guy go by him and DeAndre Francois gets sacked and Abdul Bello goes to help him up and DeAndre just kind of pouts and flips it around. Uh, that's when we start seeing the warning signs, right? Um, and, and I remember asking Willie Taggart after the game if uh, if he's thinking about switching the quarterback position to, to James Blackman because we were told in camp that, that James didn't have a great camp, but obviously it wasn't working with DeAndre Francois and, and there were some chemistry issues there. And, and they had worked really hard to get DeAndre kind of on the – to buy in, to get on the, the right path. And and it clearly was not working when things started to spiral. Uh, Willie was but, not happy with the answer. He was he was kind of indignant about it, actually, that, that I would ask that question. But it was something our message board was was begging for at the time to be for that to be asked. But the judgment of a man to believe you can be build around DeAndre Francois questions their judgment. I and that that's on that we 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 jumped on that bandwagon fast as hell. And by the Notre Dame game, when that rolled around that season, I think all of us were abundantly clear where we stood on that. But the fact that three games into that year, after a 30 to seven ass kicking in the carrier dome, a place named after air conditioning that has no air conditioning, <laughs> you would think that you would realize, man, we've gotten our backside beat two out of three games. Like, everything's up for grabs. Like, why are you so strongly in the corner of a guy who isn't in your corner in a Francois? And that was one of the very first things I do remember about that season, beyond the VTech and results of those early games, was that he believed Francois was some, you know, figure to build around a program, and he's not. He never was. And I don't know how you can spend time with him and think he was. In a practice, in person, in an interview setting, any setting with that young man, it was abundantly clear he is not what a program can be built around. You can use him, you can play him, but he isn't that guy. You don't act like he's the guy that the other guys would gravitate to. Josh, you're you're shaking your head like preach, Chris, preach. You have anything to add on on that? 
No, I, I, I just, no, I agree with what Chris was saying. Okay, you were adamantly shaking your head. It was enthusiastic. He was making so good points. His energy was palpable at the time. Uh, the one thing I will say with DeAndre Francois, I didn't mind him trying on DeAndre. I thought that was a reclamation project based on his pure talent, certainly worthy of taking a, a chance on. The issue, as Chris said, and this is something I had talked about with, with someone on staff like after the season, uh, was when things went wrong, when DeAndre hit the bad side of him, the side that made him kind of volatile and and led to people taking sides within the locker room. Like when that starts emerging, and I don't know exactly when it happened. I know when Chris references the Notre Dame game, we'll get to that in a minute or two because that was a, a clarifying moment for me personally in covering the team. But, but when DeAndre starts – uh, when the team starts spiraling with DeAndre at the helm, you have to know as a coach, you have to have an idea of your personalities and and who you can trust, who you can't trust with a certain amount of leadership. Uh, and DeAndre, by all accounts, just wasn't wasn't that guy as tough as he was, as good as some of his yeah, physical tools, like his arm talent were. He, he just he wasn't running things smoothly and the offense was sputtering under him. And more importantly, that the program was sputtering under his guidance and Someone had explained it to me as like, well, Willie Taggart's got almost this Bobby Bowden-esque survival or or savior complex, excuse me, savior complex. And because that was always Bobby's thing, right? It was like, I'd rather take a chance on a kid and him be under, you know, my wing than him go out somewhere else and and fail. But my point to, to, to that staffer at the time was, I understand taking a risk on your guy, someone that you bought into, someone that you brought into your program, but why why someone that you inherited would you put that much uh, equity into? And they didn't have an answer, a good answer for it. They didn't actually have an answer at all. They said, you, you may be right. Uh, and to me, that's when we start looking at the missteps of Willie Tagger, especially in that first season, uh, that is a clear-cut one. Going down the line here with some other games, we have the Syracuse one. Remember, NIU was a a dogfight as well for most of that game. Uh, they go up to Louisville and, and Bobby Petrino basically gifts them that game. Uh, then the Miami game too was to me another moment. Chris, if you want to talk about the Miami game, if you recall that one, even going into yeah. it. That's a 28, 27 DJ Matthews play will always be to play. I think people will think back to from an FSU perspective in that game, you know, FSU led, they outplayed them for the first half and then it all fell apart, fell apart very quickly in the third quarter protection went to hell protecting the ball went to hell they just you know red zone defense wasn't there from a defensive perspective they squandered a great opportunity for a win that would have gave them three in a row with the potential of at least stacking one more on with wake forest the uh, following week after a bye week yeah going so into the bye of, week was they, huge they were in a position to establish some positive momentum as a program and start showing signs and it kind of for lack of a better term, ran down their leg against their in-state rival. And they that team, after that game, talking to them, was not only devastated but felt broken. And mm. that was a bigger issue is that you're, you're essentially, at that point, you're, what, six games into a season? Yeah, six games into a season. Mm-hmm. And it feels like you're done. And you still have Clemson coming up, NC State coming up, trip to Notre Dame coming up, BC in the cold coming up. Uh, you know, or I'm sorry, BC was at home coming up and that game was played in the rain. And then, of course, you have in-state Florida to wrap it up. So you're halfway through and you're leaving Coral Gables and you don't feel good about yourselves at all. You're in a rough, rough place. And they felt like they were 
directionless. Like they didn't know who and what they were definitely trying to be, what they could accomplish. And it felt like they put so much into that Miami game that when it was squandered and faltered and they didn't get it in the end, that they were left without answers. And I don't, again, another instance of it didn't feel like they ever were able to recover. It's like every time they got knocked down, they didn't know how to get up. And that was the issue with that program under Willie Taylor was they never had a long-term plan. Everything was done in a short-term view by them and nothing was about establishing what we're going to be long-term, making the right choices of who we're building around, making the right choices of how are we going to do this, making the right choices of, yeah, we're going to lose some, but we're playing for something bigger. They lost Miami. It felt like they lost everything. It wasn't about, you know, circle the wagons, take the bye week, come out and play with momentum down the stretch on the year. Nobody was talking that way after that game. They were all broken and distraught. And that will be, uh, you mentioned a couple of recurring themes there, Chris. One, the, the inability to get back up sometimes, but then two, the putting all the eggs into one basket approach for a game emotionally is something that carries over in 2019 as well for a little foreshadowing when we do our next episode. Uh, but, but looking at, they, they do bounce back after the bye week to beat Wake Forest. Wake Forest isn't you know, a signature win by any means. You should beat Wake Forest at home if you're Florida State. Then they have Clemson coming to Doak. Josh, do you remember the kind of the vibe around that that game coming up? That that uh, Trevor Lawrence is a freshman, true freshman, starting to get things going. Uh, I forget what Clemson was ranked at the time, but do you recall, Josh, like what the internal they, vibe was? They were ranked number two. Two. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, there was a um, despite everything we'd seen on the field prior to this, there was a weird air of confidence, not only amongst the staff but amongst the players as well. Like. They really thought they were going to win that game, and they thought that they had a game plan that was going to win that game. And I'm not sure what they saw from themselves that made them believe or what they saw from Clemson on tape that made them believe that they were going to win that game. But they really thought they were going to win that game. And I think there was a there was a there was probably more disappointment than most know uh, after they lost in the play. The players. So that was one of the times I think that that the kind of glue started coming undone. Wouldn't you say where the players started really pointing the fingers at the coaches? We're getting that. We're it's tough to pinpoint when I know when the moment was for me, but yeah, we're, we're getting into that. Well, that that game included punches being thrown, players quitting on plays, loafing, uh, sideline demeanor. That was just completely of a defeated nature. So yeah. Yes. And they really thought they were going to win that game. Chris, do you remember the week leading up to it? We won't mention names. We had people like on the beat we were arguing with that were, and this was a Willie Taggart driven narrative that FSU's defensive line was as good as Clemson's defensive line at that time. And, and Willie's like, well, we go up against our defensive line and practice every day. Like it won't be, it won't be an issue. And yeah. I, and I remember, I remember like, that. I remember that. And I oh remember laughing at it and poking fun at it constantly. And we still do sometimes, but like yeah. that, I think, but that, again, that wasn't just reporters writing that. Like they wrote it because Willie Taggart gave them those quotes. He believed it. That was the message they were spinning internally was that Brian Burns and the sophomore uh, Marvin Wilson were as good as that Clemson defensive line that included Cleland Farrow's a third, uh, third overall pick that year's draft. Christian Wilkins was a top 15 pick. Dexter Lawrence is emerged as one of the better defensive tackles in the NFL. Who's the other defensive end that I'm missing? I mean, <laughs> It's not the it was not the same thing. And, and therein lies to me a kind of the microcosm of not having good self-awareness internally and, and being able to self-evaluate. So that Clemson game happens, like Chris says, it's 
it's a cluster you know what during the game uh what was it it wasn't it seven nothing or zero zero at the end of the first quarter but it, it spirals guys are throwing punches two guys are ejected it's a quandary white and Nyquan Murray, and then what they were both suspended. Chris, correct me if I'm wrong for the next half, for the first half of the next game against NC State. I believe so. It's something like that. So, and that was something that I know a lot of people were kind of questioning at the time. Like, it was there that was a sufficient punishment for again a team that seemed like it was unraveling a little bit. Also for the NC State game, and FSU loses 47 to 28. That's when the defense, which, which was they felt they were so limited at linebacker, they were always selling out against the run. Clemson and NC State between that time, uh, teams started to expose them a little bit and, and found soft spots in the middle of the field. FSU just could not stop NC State's offense, but DeAndre Francois did not play because he had an injury. I forgot if it was a concussion or ribs. Uh, Willie wasn't ever clear on that, but James Blackman comes in and and they put up one of the better offensive performances of the, the season under James. And the team honestly seems reinvigorated a little bit, at least on the offensive side of the ball, which was awful to that point. Uh, so, so that takes us to the Notre Dame game. Mm. That to me is when I checked out or when I, when I said, I, oh, there's two instances, one we'll talk about in the next episode, but this was the first one. I know Chris tried to identify it earlier. This for me was the first moment uh, where I said, I'm, I don't believe Willie Taggart can fix this thing because he seemed so clueless to what his team needed at that point. And to me, that was, he went that entire week of practice without naming a starting quarterback. James has a really good game, but DeAndre's the guy he's stuck with the entire season. So they go through this practice with neither quarterback having a, the team in general, not knowing who the starting quarterback's going to be. I think they thought it was going to be DeAndre, but they weren't sure. And Chris, remember we got, I got the text that uh, of course we're always, I'm always getting a quarterback text on a Friday night. We were at a bar right outside of Wrigley when I was told uh, that we were, that DeAndre was going to be the starter. And at that point I was like, okay, they're, they're done. Uh, do you, do you remember what you felt in that moment when we knew that DeAndre was going to be the starter for that game? I wondered why it took till then. Like, I don't, I never understood the suspense that was built up for that. Um, internally, internally, not externally, internally. To this day, I've never had a good explanation on it. Players were confused in the sense of not knowing exactly who was starting, what the exact game plan would be dependent, dependent upon the starter and it, it was like this kept secret that I don't know why it was kept secret. I did, maybe DeAndre wasn't medically cleared till Thursday. I've never been told that. Maybe they truly wanted to be in open competition till Friday. I've never been told that. I'm just saying there was never clarity provided. And this is from talking to people associated with the team, coaches, players, people that know the intricacies of the program. Nobody has a good answer for that. So they roll out there, they hit the field. It's the worst pregame warm-up I've ever seen in my life yeah, for yeah, any team ever. Yeah, people or, or other people covering the team are saying how loose they look, and, and you and I are just kind of rolling our eyes because I think we knew what was coming at that point. They looked unorganized, not focused, and they're in a place that's not super easy to play against a team that was pretty damn good in that year. And they got raced exactly how it looked like they would in pregame. 42 to 13 was the final of that one. That game was basically over after about three plays. Um, I mean, it was awful. It was horrible. First, first play remember, of the game is an interception, right? It was a second. I believe it was second the second play, play of the game. It wasn't the okay. first play when they missed the read where they could have handed it off and run straight up the gut. I can't and recall. The second I, play I, is a tip I, ball and pick. Remember, I it think was that's a, how it played out. It was a fired pass into Trey McKitty. Uh, McKitty could have caught it, but it was a little bit behind him, and it was thrown with way too much zip, and it gets off McKitty's hands, and it's intercepted, and 
that's all she wrote. Notre Dame basically ran from South Bend to Indianapolis without the defense trying to stop them. I mean, it was just an ass kicking. It was brutal. After that game, somebody who I'm very good friends with, known for a really long time, spoke to what Walt Bell, and Walt was just beside himself. He was so frustrated, so fed up. It was clearly a disaster. Um, and the program was not in a good place. And I wrote after that game that they were a rudderless ship. And to this day, it's probably the best thing I've ever said, having some foresight on what might happen, because they had no direction. They had no clue who and what they were trying to be. They had no clue how they were going to get there. They had no clue how they were going to be better tomorrow than they were today. And it was clear as day leaving South Bend, Indiana, that it was a complete mess and that they were playing to the end of the season that they were going to be lucky to win the next week, which I did. It's BC at home, crappy game, 22-21. That was a game where two teams tried to beat themselves a lot. And then, of course, they got their ass kicked by Florida the following week. Well, and and let, let's say, well, let's hold on there real quick, Chris. Florida was a couple weeks later. Was, was uh, right. right after that. But, but real quick, uh, because as we're going chronologically through here, for me, that Notre Dame game was, and going into it, the, the week leading into it, the uncertainty, the seeing the – the confusion that people internally had about the program of not knowing who the quarterback's going to be and what direction we're going in. That's when I started to kind of sell my, you know, buy out basically, as Josh said earlier, do you remember when your moment was Chris, when you, was it Virginia tech as early as that, where you started? I, I think you were a little bit early. So if I, if I'm being a, a transparent I, here, I, I think Chris kind of first was the first one to be like, this isn't right. And then myself and, and Josh, because he's not there every day. And I think we're going to get to where he started kind of seeing the warts and organization with the program kind of coming to head like a week after I did. But, but Chris, do you remember when, when you did early in the year V tech, for example, even Miami, I thought, they're not very good, but you can kind of fake it till you make it and get a couple years out of it before you lose your job. After Notre Dame, I was wholeheartedly convinced that it was just, it was a complete freaking mess, that it was not going to get better, that the current status quo of what they were trying to do, how they were trying to operate, the players that were running out there, the way they were trying to coach as a staff, that these things weren't going to work and they weren't going to win enough to get what they needed to improve. It's, you know, it's a two, two lane road and you need to win enough to get guys into the program when you're bad, so you don't lose more, they were going to just keep losing more because they weren't going to get better players in the program. And Notre Dame for me was kind of the tipping point where I just, I remember telling, you know, friends and family, FSU people that I've grown up with and known forever that I just didn't think it was going to work. Like, uh, yeah, it's not personal. I just thought it was going to be bad and I didn't think it was going to get better. And that, man, all those good feelings we had for those six, seven months before they kicked off, they're gone. They're evaporated. There's no goodwill left in the bank for me to think that the things is going to turn around and be better all of a sudden. So as they, they kind of, again, they circle the wagons and had that sloppy win against Boston college. Uh, Adazio kind of gives that one to, to Florida state with his game management. Uh, that becomes a, uh, a common theme over the last two years. Two days later, Josh writes a, uh, writes an article. I think that's going into a Monday morning. I remember cause I had to, to cover the Jadon Hazelwood uh, official visit. Is that right? Jadon Hazelwood? I had to cover his official visit that day. And uh, and awkwardly, this, this article gets released. Thanks for this, Josh. Like maybe 10 minutes before his official visit is up. Uh, but you had some juice. You had some information. What do you uh, mean? Why are you thanking me? What happened? Uh, it was just awkward. <laughs> I was standing out there and uh, it, it was awkward. I wrote a story called FSU Coaching Insider, 
changes expected after 2018 season. And this was, like you said, the week of the UF game, I believe, right? And I said that, um, you know, there was, there was a couple key points. And I said that I'm told Willie Taggart plans to sit down with each coach for an in-depth discussion on the season, their coaching performance, and the future of what's to come for each coach. Based on what I'm hearing, his upcoming discussion with defensive coordinator Harlan oh, Barnett. Oh, wait, just before you explain everything that you reported on this, let's do it Quentin Tarantino style. What was the reaction to this story that's written? And then go back and explain to us everything that oh, is geez. reported. How about that? I was told that everything that I wrote was wrong. I got a phone call and I was I was pretty much uh, it was it was a hostile phone call. I was told that everything that I wrote was wrong, that all my sources must hate me. I was like, what do you mean my sources might? Because they all lied to you. And I was like, well, I mean, I was like, there's just not one source. And, you know, I was pretty good about what I wrote. Um, but I was told that, you know, why didn't I, why didn't I make a call to the head man and, and verify everything? Because this just none of this is right. And I couldn't be further from the truth. And just everything was wrong. So, um I didn't feel that same way. I stuck with the story. I didn't edit it at all. I didn't leave it up. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't think to take it down. Um, but what I, you know, w- 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 the first point that I made in the story was um, I'm hearing that up, his upcoming discussion with defensive coordinator Harlan Barnett is one to keep an eye on. There's some reason to believe that Barnett's scheme and philosophy don't match with what Taggart wants to do. Although recently Barnett has shown the ability to adapt and change. He moved from the sideline, blah, blah, blah. I'm foreshadowing the switch of defense. Um, it happened. And that's exactly what I wrote about. Then I said, I spoke with several sources within the FSU program and throughout coaching circles that believe FSU will go in another direction at special teams. Alonzo Hampton's unit has underperformed all season and he's like the most likely to go if and when changes are made on January 2nd, Alonzo Hampton was fired. He was the first coach that left. The possibility here's here's the next the next one. The possibility of a coach or two being reassigned to an off field job is also something I'm hearing. Wide receiver coach David Kelly has been Taggart's off field recruiting coordinator for the past three years. Blah blah blah. David Kelly was moved. Well, he was tried to be reassigned. He didn't. He wasn't successfully reassigned. But um, as you can see, everything that I wrote in here. Uh, kind of played out exactly how I said. And it was the beginning of a weird time for me and the coaching staff and just covering this program in general. And that that's something we're going to delve into on the, the upcoming episode, the part two of this, which is that it kind of sets a weird tone for the, the upcoming off season. There's a lot of change that happens, uh, a lot of rumors. Uh, it, it's just, it, it becomes a really weird revolving door of, of pieces and uh, Josh's dynamic. I think it's really interesting with, with Willie Taggart, if I'm being transparent, like it, yeah, it just gets, it gets worst, weird. I went through the worst period of my career for sure. And, and it, it's been a very good, you know, I've had a fun ride, but it, there was just, it was a bad time. Yeah, it it was. And and what I learned during. Well, let's save that one for for the next one, because I think that's going to be the meat and potatoes. Uh, Let's wrap up the the 2018 season. That'll carry us into the offseason when we start the next podcast. FSU goes, well, host Florida. Uh, At that point, that's to get bowl eligible uh, for the streak to remain intact. That obviously doesn't happen. FSU loses 41 to 14. 
afterwards. Uh, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm saying anything that that uh, you heard differently. I heard the locker room was despondent. Like the, the, the guys in it were fighting, uh, not physically, but like yelling at each other, yelling at coaches. There was no control. There was no leadership. It was just a group of players that had more or less checked out and it become so frustration, frustrated. It just, it boiled over from guys pouting on the field afterwards to it being finger pointing galore in the locker room. It was rife with dysfunction is what I remember being told. Hmm. Rife with dysfunction. I think that's a, uh, I think that's a good way to end this episode of the podcast and, uh, and we'll resume the next one. I want to say what day, but I think later this week is the plan. Um, Tomorrow. And don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> Put that evil on. <laughs> I love Josh putting unneeded pressure on Sinone. Yeah, like I'm not no. recording another podcast for something else like in 10 minutes from now. Yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. And all those corona fears that you got going. And I'm pretty sure I have the corona. I'm still fairly confident that's self-quarantine. Uh, yeah, I think this hopefully paints a picture of of some of the moving parts that are going on throughout the season of why we're showing skepticism in the way we cover this team. Like as much as we want to be objective and we have to be, be objective and, and unbiased and in, in what we write and say, uh, we also need to tell you guys what we're seeing and without breaking sources or going into too many details. And it, it's a weird balancing act that we have. And even on the message board, like recently we have pe- some people saying, I wish you were more, uh, up front about what was happening in the Willie Taggart era. And then on Twitter, I'm having people yell at me saying I'm negative about the coverage of Willie Taggart. And and I think it's just an interesting dynamic to see how people are viewing it. Um, and part of it is we just can't tell you everything that we're seeing at the time. But but we had concerns going into the 2019 offseason. But it gets really weird once we get into that offseason. So I will leave you guys with that thought. Uh, hopefully you found this an informative podcast. I promise you the next one I think is going to be even even more telling and, and more interesting than this one. So for Josh Newberg, for Chris Nee, I'm Brendan Sinone. This is On the Bench with the first part of our What Went Wrong with Willie series. Uh, stick with us maybe tomorrow. We'll see. See you guys tomorrow. Whoa! Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.